Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Don't have a Bible, there are paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. <clears throat> Passage appears on page 496 this morning, 496, paperback Bibles. Mark 14, we'll be looking at the first 11 verses. <clears throat> Just a couple things, excuse me, a couple things here to uh, mention before we get in. Uh, first of all, just as a reminder, um, we have a, uh, an outreach ministry here at New Life called Kids Hope, and that is where we send uh, adult mentors into the local schools here in Yorktown to just come alongside a child who has been identified as an, as an at-risk child. And um, it's a great opportunity for us to bless our local schools. And so we're looking for more volunteers for this. It requires one hour a week uh, during the school hours, of course. And uh, Connie Connor, can, can I please have you just stand uh, for a moment? This is Connie. She is the one who leads our Kids Hope Ministry. And so uh, thank you, Connie. If you are interested in serving, see, see Connie. Uh, of course, the school year has already started, but we generally kind of go into the schools a little later, probably is like October, maybe, start. Okay, good. <clears throat> so, again, great opportunity to serve our local schools, Kids Hope. Um, the other thing to note this morning is that in two weeks, two weeks from today, on September 24th, we're going to have our second annual Invite a Friend Sunday. So, you might recall we did this last fall, and so we hope to do this every year, God willing, and this is just an opportunity for all of us to bring somebody along to church on a Sunday morning, in particular two weeks from now, September 24. So, um, be thinking and praying about that, maybe a co-worker, maybe a neighbor, a brother, sister, and just invite them to come along with you on Sunday morning. We do have these cards here, join us for worship. They are at the Welcome Center. You can grab one of these makes it very easy for you just to have a short interaction with somebody, hand them this card, and they'll know where to go. But I would suggest one thing, and that is that you would be willing to pick the person up and bring them to church. makes it a lot easier to come to a new church when people are coming with somebody else. So let me suggest that to you. Uh, but again, that's uh, two weeks. So you got two weeks to pray and think about who you might invite on September 24th. All right. <clears throat> Let's turn our attention now to the Scriptures, again, in Mark chapter 14. There are some of us sports fans who are very excited today because this is the first Sunday of the NFL season. And I know some of you don't care, uh, <clears throat> and, and some of us do, and Colts fans probably don't care so much either because we're not expecting a lot from our team this year. But uh, nonetheless, the NFL season begins today. One thing you notice when you watch an NFL game is that there are typically um, some people down there in the front row and they're dressed in an outlandish costume, uh, something like this. <clears throat> uh, this guy identifies himself, it says, a super fan Colts. He is a Colts super fan. Did a little research, found out this guy's name is Michael Hobson, and he has been a fan of the Colts since 1989. And so, <laughs> faithful fan of the Colts, outlandish costume. He says he's a fan. We, we might say he looks a little more like a fanatic, right? There, there is a difference between a fan and a fanatic. What, what is a fanatic? What, what constitutes, what qualifies a person to be a, a fanatic? A fanatic is defined as a person 
with extreme enthusiasm and devotion, in particular in the area of politics and religion. It doesn't mention sports, but in particular in politics and religion. Fact is, we don't really worry too much about the sports fanatic, right? It's all in good fun, and, uh, you know, it's, it's fun to look at him and to see how enthusiastic he is about his team, but people do worry about religious fanatics, right? Because religious fanatics are the kinds of people that hijack airplanes and fly them into buildings. <clears throat> religious fanatics are the types of people who hear God saying things to them like, hey, you need to go kill this person or that person, right? You know, religious fanatics can be dangerous. We get worried about that, and I think for some people, they might even be hesitant to become Christians because they think, if I'm going to be a Christian, I've got to be a fanatic. Do you have to be a fanatic to be a Christian? Are we fanatics? I think there are some people in this world who might say that we are, actually, given some of the convictions that we hold. <clears throat> there are really two ends of the spectrum. If you think of the spectrum with, on the one hand, nominal Christians. Have you heard that word before? Nominal Christians. The word nominal comes from the, the root there, nom, which just means name. Nominal Christian is the Christian who is a Christian in name only. The nominal Christian is the person who checks the box on the survey that he or she is a Christian, but it doesn't mean a whole lot more than that. They are not too devoted, the nominal Christian. On the other end of the extreme is the fanatical Christian. And that is the person who is not underdevoted, but perhaps too devoted, the person that we might call an extremist. And the conventional wisdom is that it's better to kind of find the middle ground, you know, the point right in between nominal Christian and fanatical Christian. You know, we don't want to go off on the deep end, right? Um, all things in moderation. Don't, don't get too into it. You know, be reasonable. That's kind of the conventional wisdom. Let's not get into it too much. But here in Mark 14, what we have is a story of a person who seems to go off the deep end, quite frankly. Uh, this story in Mark 14 shows somebody who does something quite extreme to show her love for Jesus. And it sets a great example and inspiration for us as Christ followers. So if you're able to stand, why don't you do that now? And I'm going to read Mark 14, <clears throat> 1 through 11. Um, we are working our way through the book of Mark, one paragraph at a time. <clears throat> We're here at chapter 14, just three chapters left. Um, but chapter 14 happens to be, I think, the longest chapter in the book of Mark. It'll take us a little while to get through 14. But here we're finding uh, Jesus in His final steps as He approaches the cross, His suffering and the resurrection, the Good Friday and Easter kind of themes. We're, we're getting into those now here, starting in chapter 14. Starting with verse 1, <clears throat> it says this, "'It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Him by stealth and kill Him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while He was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as He was reclining at table, a woman with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, Came, uh, excuse me, and she broke the flask. I feel like I missed a word there somewhere. Reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask, an ointment full of pure nod, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. 
There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial, and truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Holy Spirit, would you please come and open our eyes and hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. So just a note here about the structure um, of this text. Something that Mark does from time to time is uh, he'll have like two things he talks about, and then he puts something in between the two things. It's kind of like a sandwich technique. And you see this at play here in chapter 14. You see verses 1 through 2, and then if you look at verses 10 through 11, um, excuse me, I didn't read verses 10 through 11. That's my fault. Let me do that. Uh, starting with verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. So you'll see verses 1, 2, and 10, and 11, are, if you can kind of think of those as the two kind of slices of bread on a sandwich. And the meat of the text, though, is in between those two, this story of, of this woman. And so what we really have here is a contrast between those who are against Jesus and those who are for Jesus. And so that's how my points are divided up here uh, this morning, just a, a contrasting two-point message. So the first thing that I want us to see from this passage is that a self-centered devotion leads to a denial of Jesus. A self-centered devotion leads to a denial of Jesus. So in verse 1, we see here it's uh, <clears throat> getting close to Passover time and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So this is uh, the Passover, a very important holiday in the Jewish calendar. This was a, a meal that was celebrated as a way of commemorating the time when God liberated Israel from their bondage to Egypt in this very kind of miraculous way. That is, um, He said, if you put blood on your door frame, we, I will pass over and not uh, kill the firstborn in the household, which is what God had threatened to do to Egypt for enslaving His people. And so there was a, a lamb that was slain in the afternoon, and then they would eat that lamb in their homes, in the privacy of their homes in the evening. And so this was a regular uh, observance, Passover. Passover was the beginning then of what is called the, the um, <clears throat> uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would go on for several days after that. And so very often these are referred to kind of uh, together. That's all I'm going to say about this right now, because next week we're going to get into this in more detail as we consider how the Passover relates to the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> but this is the time of year that it is. The Passover uh, is, is coming, and we have a plot here beginning to develop among these uh, chief priests and scribes, these religious leaders, members of the Sanhedrin. And so what I want to point out to you here is um, some examples of different kinds of devotion. So when we talk about fanaticism, we're really talking about what we're really passionate for. 
and probably all of us are fanatical, devoted, passionate about something. And whatever it is that you're first and foremost devoted to, that is what's going to have a lot to do with what you do with your life and how you think and the, the convictions that you hold and the decisions you make about what to do and how to live. They're related to your passions, your, what you're devoted to in your heart. And there are three things here that I think we can pull out where we see a devotion to something that is leading people to do things that are not good at all. It leads people to deny Jesus, not to embrace Jesus. And so, th- three things here. First of all, notice that we have this devotion to power among some people, and that's in verses 1 and 2. These chief priests, these scribes, they were seeking, it says in verse 1, how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill Him. These are the religious leaders who have been in power. They're the ones who have been in charge. They're the ones who are used to people coming to them and asking questions. They're the ones used to making final decisions. And now Jesus comes onto the scene, and He's a threat to their power because people are going to Jesus now. They see that He teaches with this unusual authority. And Jesus comes into the temple and acts like He owns the place. And He even makes these claims that He is God in the flesh. And they begin to get a little bit nervous. This guy seems to think he has more power than we have. And so, in their devotion to power and to maintain their power, they decide they're going to kill him. By stealth, it says, we need to do this carefully. We need to do this deceitfully. It needs to be an underhanded effort because, again, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is coming. That means a lot of people are coming to Jerusalem. Tons of people are going to be here, and if we do it in the open too much, people are going to notice it. There's going to be an uproar. It's not going to go down well. So, let's not do this quite yet. And so, they they choose to delay. But you see here, it's their devotion (coughs) to power, to maintaining their power, that leads them to want to kill Jesus. I mean, just what came to mind, I don't know if you watch the news and pay attention to international affairs, but you know, in Russia, there's a guy named Vladimir Putin who's in power there. Vladimir Putin. And have you heard about this, this group called the Wagner Group? This Wagner Group is like this opposing group in Russia, and, and they had been coming after Putin and kind of threatening Putin's power. Have you heard about this? You know, it has to do with the, the war in Ukraine. And so, this Wagner Group is showing up Vladimir Putin, the guy in, in Russia, and everybody's been talking about it. And uh, just like last week, suddenly the leader of the Wagner group was killed in a helicopter crash. Helicopter crash. Boy, what a coincidence. <laughs> you know, people were wondering, talking to him about whether he was going to be safe because he was challenging the power of Vladimir Putin. Uh, people were expecting there might be attempts on his life and and well, that's exactly what happened. Putin's power was threatened, threat eliminated. And that's what these chef, chief priests and scribes are seeking to do. Jesus is a threat. They need to eliminate Him. But we see another uh, kind of devotion here in the text, and that is what I'm calling a devotion to a social cause. This devotion to a particular social cause leads some people to deny Jesus in a particular way. So, let me show you. Verse 3, the scene changes, okay? So, remember what I said? This story about the woman is sandwiched in between these two other events, and so now we're getting to the meat of the passage. Verse 3, Jesus is in Bethany. It's about two miles outside of Jerusalem. He's in the home of a guy named Simon the leper. 
Interesting to note that Simon the leper must not be a leper anymore because he's got people in his home, (laughs) right? Lepers don't have people in their home. You can't do that. So, the fact that he's having a dinner party in his home suggests he has been healed of leprosy, and that healing probably came by the power of Jesus. And so, here's these people. They're reclining at table. They are eating uh, together, and in comes this woman in verse 3. And just that is kind of a startling thing because it was not customary at all for a woman to just barge into a meal where men were eating and uh, do something significant like this. I mean, if they were waiting on the men, that would be acceptable, but that's not what this woman is doing. This is a bold woman. And so she enters in, and she has with her an alabaster flask. Alabaster just means kind of like white or translucent. A flask is like a little bottle. And in this flask is an ointment of pure nard, kind of like a perfume. Very costly. Nard would have come probably imported from India. So this would be a very kind of exotic, extravagant thing. And again, it says here, verse 3, very costly, very expensive. This woman comes in with something that's worth a lot of money, kind of like you have a dinner party, and then you look out and someone drives up in a Rolls Royce or a Jaguar. Like, that's unusual. This is different. This is not, those aren't cars that everybody drives. And women in particular don't carry around alabaster flasks of this particular kind of ointment. And in fact, we're told in verse 5 that what this ointment is worth is 300 denarii, it says. Just one denarii would be an average day's wage, average wage for one day's work. So 300 denarii, you uh, you know, account days off uh, in, in there, and uh, you've got basically one year's wages. This bottle of perfume is worth about one year's salary. <laughs> so, depending on what study you look at here in the United States, the average salary is between like forty and fifty thousand dollars. So, this thing would be the equivalent of about forty to fifty thousand dollars in this flask, this nard, this ointment. And what does she do? <clears throat> She pours it all out on the head of Jesus, just dumps it. And you can just imagine the gasps in the room. (laughs) You know she's got their attention, right? I mean, their mouths are coming open, and in fact, it tells us in verse 4 that they were indignant about this. This was irritating to them. They're angry about this. Why was the ointment wasted like that? Woman, you just wasted this expensive ointment and perfume. Now, j- just think about the implication of that. You know, they go on here and they say, you know, we could have given this to the poor. This is why this is such a waste. We could have given this to the poor. The implication is, is this. The poor, the poor are worth that woman, but Jesus isn't. Jesus isn't worth that kind of praise. He's not worth that kind of extravagant adoration. To pour that out on him is a waste. And so, for them, their social cause was helping the poor. We've got to help the poor. But their problem is that they exalted helping the poor more than Jesus himself. 
And so, friends, there are lots of social causes that as Christians we might want to be involved in, whether it's helping the poor or fighting racism or fighting sex trafficking, all things that ought to be opposed and that we ought to work against. But if they get more important to us than loving Jesus, they're getting out of order. That's when social causes go sour because they become an idol to us and they become the ultimate goal the most important thing, our most cherished value, and that kind of affirmation belongs to Jesus alone. So, there's a devotion here to a social cause that leads these people astray. But there's one more thing here. There's devotion to money. There's an out-of-balance devotion to money, and we see that at the end in verses 10 and 11. So, here's Judas very familiar character from the Scriptures. We know Judas has the notorious traitor, Judas Iscariot. And uh, notice how here it says in verse 10, he went to the chief priest. We've already read about the chief priest. They want to kill Jesus. It's not like the chief priests are going to Judas. Judas is going to the chief priests. Voluntarily, he goes to betray his teacher and friend. He's not being asked to do this And probably what he's thinking is, I might be able to make some money out of this. Because you notice that's exactly what happens in verse 11. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. Did he ask for the money or did the chief priest offer it? We don't really know, but that's what Judas wanted. John chapter 12, which is the parallel account of this, tells us that Judas was actually the guy in charge of the money bag that the disciples would carry around, and they'd use that to help the poor. And it says in that text that he very often would sneak his hand in there and help himself to what was in the back. He was the thief. He was devoted to money. And so that led him, his love for money, and perhaps he was there when the nard was poured on, the one, on Jesus' head. And perhaps he was one of the ones saying, what a waste. We could give this to the poor, and boy, sure it would be nice if I had a little bit of what that was worth. So, something else kind of startling to notice here in verses 10 and 11. Well, verse 10, I guess, it says Judas, who was one of the twelve. He was one of the twelve. He was one of the chosen disciples. He talked like a Christian. He acted like a Christian. He hung out with Christians, and he was a fraud. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. And in any congregation of believers, there could possibly be someone who walks the walk and talks the talk, but doesn't really know Jesus as Savior. And that seems to be the case here with Judas. <coughs> but it's, <coughs> it's money. Money is what is driving him Many of us are fearful, perhaps, that we're going to be poor. I would suggest that as Christians, we ought to be more fearful of getting rich. Because when money gets in our hearts, it can lead us to do regrettable things. It has a way of swelling up our passions and desires, and we can become a fanatic for money. We can become a fanatic for a social cause. We can become a fanatic for power, and in any case, those lead us to deny Jesus. But the second thing to consider is this, a gospel-centered devotion leads to delight in Jesus. A gospel-centered devotion leads to delight in Jesus. Now, let me just note here before we go on, I don't want to pass this over too quickly, but 
Note the exalted place that women hold in Scripture. I mean, all over the Bible, you see the affirmation of the roles of women. Think of, of Eve. I mean, yeah, she ate the fruit, but, you know, Eve was also called the mother of all the living because when the gospel was pronounced to her, the very first gospel proclamation in Genesis 3.15, it was Eve who believed it. That's why she's called the mother of all the living. She believed the gospel promise. We know, of course, about Mary. God comes to Mary and says that she found favor with God, and so she was chosen to conceive and bear a son, to bear our Savior. <clears throat> Remember the first witnesses to the resurrection. The first witnesses to the resurrection on the first Easter morning were women. And over and over again, we could detail women like Sarah and Deborah and Phoebe and Priscilla over and over again. And now here in chapter 14, we have a woman who receives one of the greatest compliments given by Jesus to anyone. And in fact, it's such a great compliment that the, at uh, verse 9, Jesus says that what she has done is going to be proclaimed in the whole world in memory of her when the gospel is proclaimed. Jesus doesn't want us to forget this woman. And in fact, verse 9 is being fulfilled right now, isn't it? Because we're talking about this woman as the gospel is proclaimed. The greatest compliment here given to this woman. Now, we might ask, who is this woman? Maybe you're asking that. Actually, it's not hard to know. I maybe should have told you this earlier. But if we look again at John chapter 12, where this same incident is recounted, we see that this woman is identified as Mary, not, not mother of Jesus, but Mary, the sister of Martha. Mary and Martha, sisters of Lazarus, who you might remember lived in Bethany, and that's where Jesus is. And remember, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but we also remember seeing that Mary was the one sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to Him teach when Martha was up on her feet working. That's who this is, Mary, Martha's sister. And so, again, notice what she does here. This thing that is so wonderful that it will be told throughout all the world. She, she comes with this flask, and, and we just got to try to picture what this must have been like for her. In, in this flask is, is her future. I mean, her security for the future years is, is in this little bottle. And she comes, and notice in verse 3, she doesn't just pour the nard on Jesus' head, she breaks the flask. She didn't have to break the thing, did she? But it was like she was saying, I am holding back nothing from you, Jesus. I'm giving it all. I'm not only giving the perfume, I'm giving the flask. I'm breaking it in pieces. I'm not even going to hang on to that because I want you to know how much I love you, how much I adore you, and how much I am devoted to you. And so what is the result, people were indignant, but we also see at the end of verse 5, <coughs> they scolded her. They criticized her. They attacked her for what she had done. Partly, yes, because this could have been used for the poor, but you know what? Another reason that they might have thought is, man, this woman's a fanatic. I mean, isn't this a little bit extreme? Isn't this going into the deep end a little too much? All things in moderation, right? I mean, how about half the ointment? <laughs> a quarter of the ointment. Really, all of it? And the flask itself seems kind of fanatical. 
And here is something, friends, that you can count on in this world. The world has no problem with religion in moderation. The world has no problem with the half-committed Christian. The world has no problem with nominal Christianity. The person who says a few nice things about Jesus but really has nothing else to distinguish him or her as a bona fide, committed Christian. But friends, when you decide in your life that whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, you're going to do it to the glory of God, you very well might be labeled a fanatic. When you decide to do just some basic things like um, give sacrificially to your church of your hard-earned income, you give that to, to the church. When you decide that you're not <clears throat> just going to pray for something, but you're actually going to fast, you're going to deprive yourself of meals for a time in obedience to what the Scripture says. When you decide that you're going to maybe engage in a conversation about Jesus with this person at the checkout line at Walmart, when you decide that you are uh, going to leave home in the comforts of the United States to go on the mission field, to go to some faraway place in order to give yourself to the proclamation of the gospel. When you, in this day and age, commit yourself to declaring that there are two genders that are determined by biology and not by our feelings, when you declare that marriage is between a man and a woman, and marriage between a man and a man and a woman, and a woman is not marriage at all, when, when you decide that as a young couple you are going to live apart until you are married, and even say we're not going to engage sexually until our wedding day, when, when you determine to do those kinds of things, you better be ready to be scolded to be considered an extremist, and maybe to be considered a fanatic. But what does Jesus do here? In response to this woman's action, we see that what others consider extremist or fanatical, Jesus calls beautiful. Verse 6, verse 6, Jesus sticks up for this woman. <clears throat> Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. As for the poor, <clears throat> the poor you will always have with you, verse 7. And whenever you want, you can do good to them, but you will not always have me. Now, Jesus here is not dismissing the poor. He, he's not suggesting that it's not important that we care for the poor. He's just, again, keeping things in priority. The Scriptures are filled with exhortations to care for the poor, and yes, that ought to be a concern of ours. But nobody gets to heaven by helping the poor. Nobody gets to heaven by being fanatical about something, by devoting yourself to some good work or some religious activity. Salvation is found in relationship with Jesus Christ alone. That's where it's found. And this woman knows that. And what Jesus is doing is putting service to the poor beneath, secondary to the most important thing, which is relationship with Christ. Tim Keller has written about this in his book, Reason for God. He says a lot of times that what makes someone so fanatical is that they think they have to earn their salvation. That's why they're so fanatical about it. That's why they do it with so much urgency and fervency, because they're trying to get God to notice them. They're trying to merit their salvation. But when you understand that salvation is by grace alone, well, here's how Keller 
says it. What if the essence of Christianity is salvation by grace? Salvation not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done for us. Belief that you are accepted by God by sheer grace is profoundly humbling. The people who are fanatics then are so, not because they're too committed to the gospel, but because they're not committed to it enough. Isn't that interesting? The fanatic is not devoted enough to the gospel. Could that be you, that you have not really grasped the grace of God that is being offered to you, that it does not depend on your efforts, no matter how good those things might be? But there's something else beautiful about this woman's action, and we see this in verse 8, where Jesus is sticking up for this woman, and, and He says this, He says, she has done what she good, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. She has anointed me for burial. In other words, this woman understands something that no one else seems to be getting. Remember, Jesus has been saying over and over again that I am going to be condemned by the chief priests, I'm going to be delivered over into the hands of these men, and I am going to be killed. And the disciples have resisted this. Remember Peter, when he heard that, he said, oh, no, no, that's not going to happen to you, Jesus. So nobody seemed to really get that the mission of Jesus was to go to a cross and die. Nobody got it. This woman did. That's why she's anointing Jesus. Jesus' interpretation is this, is she is preparing me for my burial. She's preparing me for my death because she knows that if the mission of Jesus is going to be fulfilled, He needs to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And He was committed to doing that, and this woman recognized it and honored Him for it. That's the essence and the foundation of the gospel that we celebrate here every Sunday. So, in all things moderation, you know, there's wisdom to that. So, let let me be clear as we bring this to a close. In all things moderation, yeah, in in regard to politics, in regard to food, in regard to sports, yeah, in all things moderation, but not when it comes to Jesus. That's not the place to be moderate in your love and devotion to Him. In the church today, what would honor God is not less devotion to Jesus, but more. Not less passion for Jesus, but more. Not less commitment to the things of the kingdom of God, but more. Friends, when you come to see the extreme nature of your sin, as well as the extreme lengths to which God was willing to go to pardon your sin and to forgive you and to reclaim you and to redeem you and the giving of His Son for you, when you see that, you also will see that whatever you give in service to Jesus, whether it be your money, whether it be your time, whether it be your comfort, whether it be your reputation, whether it be your very life, Whatever you give in service to this Jesus is never wasted and always regarded by God as a beautiful thing. God, we thank You so much for this wonderful example that is given to us, this dear woman named Mary who poured out everything on Your head, Jesus. We um, pray that You would give to us a similar passion, a similar devotion, a similar commitment to the kingdom that You have come to bring in by Your death and resurrection. Lord, help us, Father, to not hold back and to give all that we have in service to You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.